appreciative of that, but that's a lot of children. And I'm sure in a lot of ways, um, we all think that our baby that we have is the special baby. It's the chosen baby. It's, it's the one that, we, that we, we dote over. They're the golden child in a lot of ways, the cutest baby you've ever seen, the most perfect, the most anticipated, um, a miracle child. We use all of those words. But of all the babies born in the world, besides Jesus, and we'll get to Jesus a little later, Isaac's birth was the most important birth that we've seen in the scriptures thus far. Why? Well, because Isaac's birth is not just a birth of another baby. But we could say, in a similar way as Jesus, Isaac's birth is the birth of a promise. So last week in the text, we saw a failure of faith on Abraham's part. This week, through this birth, we have an encouragement to faith. So it's an encouragement because it reminds us that we serve a God who keeps his promises to his people. That the God of the Bible does not stand aloof from his creation. That, that God, the God of the Bible is not one who has set the world on its course and now sits in the sky in his heavenly rocking chair just kind of watching down upon us uh, to see, if, see how we work things out on our own. If anything, the book of Genesis has shown us that this is not true at all about God. In fact, it shows us the exact opposite. That God is intimately involved in his creation. That, that, he, is, that he is a God that is with us. That he's a God that, that wants to be with us even. He doesn't have to do what he's doing. It shows us that he wants to be with us. Ezekiel reminds us of this in the, in the very last sentence of his prophecy in the Old Testament. He says to, to God's people, The Lord is there. The Lord is there. The Lord is there present among his people, and he's not silent. He's with his people. So I want us to look at this text this morning uh, through the lens of three scenes, because that's kind of what we have before us. The first scene is the birth of promise, and these are in your worship guide if you're taking notes. The second scene is the threat to the promise, and then the third scene is the protection of the promise, specifically by God. So the birth of the promise, the threat to the promise, and the protection of the promise. So here in our text, we are seeing two lines that are traced throughout the book of Genesis. It's the story of two seeds, or we could say the tale of two sons. And that's happening throughout the book of Genesis. So in the Bible, if you're in, a, if, if you're in our biblical theology class, we talked about this last week, in the Bible you find two different types of genealogies. Okay? Those are the ones where you're just listing out family members' names and probably the ones you skip over in your Bible reading plan. That's just, just being honest. But in the Bible, there's two different types of genealogies. There's, there's a horizontal genealogy, and then there's vertical genealogies. So if you turn back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in cursing the serpent, God says this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, or we could replace that with seed, and her offspring. So this is where we see the two genealogies in the Bible emerge. So the horizontal genealogy, we, we would say, comes from the flesh. And the vertical genealogy comes from the Spirit. So the horizontal genealogies, in a sense, 
trace out the seed of the serpent. And that's all fallen humanity. And then the vertical genealogies trace out the seed of the woman. This is God's specially called out people through whom victory over the serpent and over sin and over death will come eventually. Now with Abraham, we get both of these genealogies because he is both. He is both seed of the serpent and seed of the woman. And just so you know, if you are a Christian, you are, you are that as well. Simultaneously, another way we could say it is sinful and justified. So let's look at this first scene to see how it begins to take shape for us with the birth of the promise in verses 1 through 7. Now, at first glance, this birth that has been so long expected doesn't look like much. Um, you would think that it's a promise that has been reminded to uh, Abraham and his wife uh, from Genesis 12. Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and Genesis 18. That this promise is coming. You will give birth to a son. And it's coming true right now in the birth of Isaac. And there's only seven verses dedicated to it. But if we look a little more deeply, we see there is way more being offered here from both Abraham and Sarah. So Moses, who's the, who's the author of Genesis, emphasizes this in verses 1 and 2. Look there with me. He says, The Lord visited, visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. So three times, three details our author highlights here from the storyline of Abraham. God said he would visit Sarah back in chapter 18. God promised that Sarah would give birth to a son, chapter 18, and that it would be when Abraham was an old man. All of this, Moses is saying to us, is coming true or has come true in Isaac. So all of these things, all all three of these combined to, to say to us, God keeps his promises. Even Abraham and Sarah both acknowledge this in their own way. They know what's going on. They are, they are not dumb to the promises. They're not going, oh yeah. Remember God did promise, say something about a child coming to me when I was 100 years old. They knew what was going on. They know that God is intimately involved in their lives. They're not just characters in a story. But they're active participants trusting God together. So Abraham's actions of naming his son makes this point. Look at verses 3 and 4. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now remember, God did say, you will name your son Isaac, which means laughter. So through these two actions of naming and circumcising, uh, Abraham is affirming his belief in God. He's affirming that, that, that God has done what he has promised that he would do towards Abraham and his wife, Sarah. So remember back in chapter 17, Abraham, after he pleads for Ishmael to be the heir, God says to Abraham these words of promise. No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So God says to Abraham, I will give you this son, 
and this is his name. And my covenant will be upon him, and the way in which you, you affirm the covenant, the way in which you affirm the promise that I'm giving to you is through the act of circumcision. Circumcision seals this for you, which serves as a reminder that, that through Isaac's line, through the seed of promise, the snake crusher will come. The Messiah, Jesus, will come. So Abraham is displaying through his works that he believes. Now I wonder, just as a point of application, if your actions do this before a watching world. Francis Schaeffer, who is a famous apologist and theologian, um, started Labrie in Switzerland, he, he said that the world has every right to look at the church, to look at Christians, and judge Christianity based upon the way they live their life together. The world has a right to look at us and then to base Christianity upon what they see in us, in our life together. So if that's true, and I I believe it is, uh, what is it that you are communicating about your belief in God in your day-to-day, moment-by-moment life? What does that look like? Is it only a belief that is sufficient when things are going well? So if God is answering your prayers in the way that you want and uh, there's no suffering involved in your life currently and you, you have a, a good job and a good paycheck coming in and all your cars are running and all your kids are beautiful and acting perfectly, is that when you give God glory? Is it, is it a belief that gets tossed out the window if you have to wait or suffer? I've been given this form- I've given you this formula before. It is not an original. I don't know where I got it from. We'll just say it's mine. Um, but, but I believe it's helpful when thinking about things like this. So it's stated belief plus actual practice equals actual belief. Stated belief plus actual practice equals actual belief. So you might say you believe one thing and then practice another, or live your life in another way. And so that practice, that action, communicates what you actually believe. Now Abraham and Sarah have showed us this time and again since chapter 12, that there there have been plenty of answers to this equation in their life, just like there is in ours. We've looked at that. We've seen how Abraham has not trusted God, not had the faith that he had in the previous chapter. We've seen him fall back into sin that he committed 25 years before. So he's back and forth. And so ups and downs, setbacks, those all happen in our lives as well. But the key, the key is always coming back to God's stated promises for you in your life. So in verses 6 through 7, I love how Sarah does this by using her laughter and doubt from chapter 18 to reveal her belief and joy in God's provision in this particular moment. This is what, what's called in biblical theology redemptive reversal. So, so the very thing Sarah doubted, which was, I'm not going to have a child in my old age, there's no way that could possibly happen, is now the very thing that she is celebrating in verses 6 through 7. Because it's a reminder to her that God is going to bring the Messiah through her son. She says these words. 
using the word laughter again, which tells you that she remembers the the embarrassing moment that she had before God Almighty when she lied and said, I did not laugh, and God says, no, you did laugh. And she uses that whole situation here in verses 6 and 7. God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So in saying, God has made me to laugh, Sarah is communicating that now the child's name, Isaac, would be a reminder of God's faithfulness rather than a reminder of her unbelief. So let that be an encouragement to you as well from Sarah's life. Maybe you've had a fair amount of unbelief in your life or embarrassing moments like Abraham. I know I have. And instead of sitting in the shame of those moments, let those times be reminders to you that God is faithful. That even when you are faithless, God remains faithful. That he will provide for you, provide for all that you need according to the riches of his mercy towards you in Christ. He'll always do that. So the birth of the promised child is here. An exciting moment, yet this isn't Abraham's first child. This isn't the first time that Abraham Uh, himself has experienced excitement around a child. Remember, he has another son, his son Ishmael. And ironically, it's in Ishmael that we see a threat to this promise in our second scene, in verses 8 through 14. Now, you may have noticed uh, that Sarah isn't the only one laughing in our text today. Um, Moses records that Ishmael is laughing as well. And that has way more significance than you might think. Look at verses 8 and 9. And so some years have passed, and the child Isaac grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So Sarah sees Ishmael laughing during this celebration of Isaac's weaning. Now, this doesn't seem like much at first. Uh, It really looks like Sarah is still holding a grudge towards Hagar. Um, We saw that back in chapter 16 when she dealt harshly with her and sent her out of her home uh, and all of that. So we might come to this and go, come on, Sarah, let's get over this. It's water under the bridge. We're in the middle of a celebration here. We're celebrating the promised child, and now he's he's of age to be weaned. And um, they're brothers, of course they're going to they're gonna fight, or of course they're going to be laughing together and, and joking with one another. Let's, let's just let that, that slide by. But this is where Bible translation is so important. This is where, where good biblical hermeneutics or good biblical interpretation comes into play. Because the word used for laughing here in verse 9 is the same word used in verse 6 by Sarah. Exact same word. But this time, in the context of what we're reading, the word takes on a different meaning. Because this time the word is not being spoken out of joy, but out of mockery. So you might have a footnote in your Bible that probably points to that down to the bottom of your page that talks about he is laughing in mockery towards his brother Isaac. Paul, so Scripture interprets Scripture, so if we look forward to the New Testament, Paul uses this very text, and he goes so far as to call this persecution. 
in Galatians chapter 4, verse 29. So we know just because of that use of the word that there was more happening here than just two brothers jesting with each other. Paul says, but just, as, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So also looking back in Genesis chapter 3 to that verse I read earlier, when God is bringing the curse down upon the serpent, he says, I will put enmity, which means hostility, I will put hostility between you and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring, between the the offspring of the flesh and the offspring of the spirit. And this hostility, if you know the, if you know the Bible story, uh, you know that the two, this, this hostility between the two offspring starts immediately. Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel. And then we see it later, if we skip ahead in the Bible, we see it later between, or, or between Jacob and Esau. And even later in the New Testament, between the true snake crusher Jesus and the serpent, who is also known as the devil. The spirit and the flesh are at war. And we are seeing it now between Ishmael and Isaac. So at this point in Genesis, in the story, Ishmael is between 15 and 17 years old. So he's a teenager. And Isaac is between 2 and 3 years old. That's usually when uh, a baby was weaned from his mother. So what is he doing here? What is Ishmael doing to Isaac that is so terrible? Well, we don't know (laughs) exactly, but it was enough for Sarah to look at it and know that it was wrong. So you know the mothers in the room, you know that you can you can look at at an interaction between your child and another child and immediately know that something is not right. And this is the instinct that Sarah has. Wrong enough, it seems, for Sarah to release Hagar from her service. That it wasn't merely brothers having a laugh together, but something more serious was happening. So more than likely, I'm speculating here, but more than likely what's happening is an act of jealousy on Ishmael and Hagar's part towards Isaac. Ishmael has been the only son of Abraham For 14 years, to everyone looking on, Ishmael was the rightful heir. So you got to think, Abraham and Sarah received this promise, which was insanity. So, and they had trouble believing it. So obviously those outside of Abraham and Sarah's circle probably had a hard time believing it as well. And culturally speaking, they're probably looking in on this family and going, laughing at them about this so-called promise and looking at Ishmael and saying, He already has a son. Why are they pining for this this promised one? So everyone looking on knew Ishmael was the rightful heir. The firstborn son, this was his right, and even Ishmael knew this. He knew that. But he also knew the promise given to his dad. And so with the birth of his brother, the child of promise, his inheritance is now in jeopardy. Now, I don't believe that Abraham showed uh, any... And you can just see in the interaction of Abraham with his, both of his sons that he showed any amount of, of favoritism to one or the other. So this is all on Isaac 
here, or, or on Ishmael here. So like his dad, it seems, Ishmael takes matters into his own hands. And as he does, it doesn't go the way he probably anticipated it would go. Look at verse 10. So Sarah said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. So they're sent away again. And this might sound harsh, but Sarah's right. The promise is to one line. The inheritance here is to one line, not two. This is why God approved Sarah's plan in verse 12 after Abraham's protest. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall, shall your offspring be named. Now, an interesting observation to know, and another way we can tell that the appropriate action is taking place here, is because God has not always approved of Sarah's plans. If you remember back in chapter 16, um, when they're uh, wanting this, this child so desperately, uh, it's Sarah's plan to give, a, to give um, Hagar to Abraham so that they can conceive a child. That is not the plan God wanted. He did not approve of Sarah's plan at that particular moment. They go through with it anyways, and we see what happens. But this time... It is the right thing to do. It is the right thing for Abraham to listen to his wife, ultimately listening to God. We know that because God reiterates what he told Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17, verse 18, when he says to God, when Abraham says to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Let Ishmael be the heir. So much easier to do that. And God is saying again, emphatically, No. Isaac is the child of promise. He is the one that the Messiah will come. So ultimately, what we see happening here is God protecting the promise. Just like he did when Abraham went to Egypt, he was protecting the promise. And when he had his interaction with King Abimelech last week, he's protecting the promise. So Sarah's plan, whether she knew it or not, was right and good. Now, if for some reason you are feeling a lot of remorse or feeling bad for Hagar and thinking poorly about Sarah at this point, I would not blame you. I've had a struggle in my relationship with Sarah in the book of Genesis. Um, because we probably do bring a lot of presuppositions to the text of how a person should be treated or how a woman in particular should be treated or, or even our thoughts that we have based upon slavery and and uh, intermarriage and all of those things. So we bring these 21st century kind of cultural norms and then we place them upon uh, a text like Genesis chapter 21 and so we begin to interpret it that way. So you may be concerned because of her status as a slave and you say that's not fair. She shouldn't be a slave in the first place. That's wrong. Or, or you, may be, uh, you may be a little miffed by the way she's used to get an heir. Here's, here's my slave woman Go and sleep with her and have a baby with her. Or maybe that she was all, the way that she was always been treated by Sarah. She's never really been treated well by her. Maybe that's where you're at. But 
if you use these presuppositions to interpret the text, you would be doing poor Bible interpretation, poor hermeneutics, what we would say. Because what we see is not a woman being mistreated, but what we see is the promise, the line of Jesus being threatened. And God is the one who's protecting the promise. And that's what we see in verses 15 through 21 in scene 3, the protection of the promise by God. One commentator wrote, that which trifles with God's work must be removed so that the faith can prosper under God's blessing. That which trifles with God's work must be removed, not out of bitterness or anger or revenge, so that faith can prosper under God's blessing. This is exactly what's happening here in this scene, which is exactly um, what we see uh, is happening to uh, Hagar and Ishmael. They're trifling with God's work. We don't know exactly what Ishmael was doing, but we know it is enough for him to be kicked out of the presence of his father Abraham. He was trifling with God's work in some way, and anytime someone trifles with God's work, they must be removed from the situation. You can look back very clearly in the scriptures to see this happening. We've seen it from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent trifles with God's promises, when the serpent trifles with God's people, he's removed. He's removed from the garden. Adam and Eve trifle with God's plans and God's purposes right at the very beginning and they are removed from the garden. They are removed from the presence of God. God cannot be in the presence of sin and they have to be removed. And the reason we see it happening in this way, the reason it's going down in this way, because it's, it's, it's God who is ultimately protecting the promise. Not Adam, although he was tasked with that as the first priest. Not Eve. Not even Abraham or Sarah could do it. Because it's God's promise. And because of what we're seeing here in our text, you can also trust that that God's promises will always come to fruition. Even in your own life, his promises will come true. So think about one promise in the New Testament that's just relevant for all of those who call on the name of Christ. So Paul says in Philippians 1.6, a pretty famous verse, and he's speaking to the Philippian church, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is a promise for you. So if you are one who struggles with, with a lot of doubt or unbelief, uh, and you're struggling kind of back and forth, like, I know, I know that I'm a Christian, but I have these questions, I have these doubts, I have this unbelief that kind of bubbles up inside my heart. Philippians 1.6, Paul is saying, God began a good work in you. This is a promise. And he will complete that good work at the day of Jesus Christ. It's a promise for you. A wonderful promise from God. That he will do that. That he will fulfill his promises. That that will come true. Even if he has to wait. So how is God protecting his promise here? Well, in verses 17 through 21, we're seeing God being faithful to keep his promise to Hagar concerning Ishmael. I don't know if you saw that there, but back in chapter 16, verses 7 through 12, the Lord gives Hagar a similar promise 
of, what he, of, of, of the promise that he gave to Abraham concerning Ishmael's offspring. So he says to Hagar back in chapter 16, Hagar, when she's out, in, she's been cast away, she's out in the wilderness again, just going to sit there and die. Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Which that's what Ishmael's name means. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So what we're seeing happen in chapter 21 is another promise coming to fruition in Ishmael. Yet one thing is missing this time. Something that Hagar did in chapter 16, which was acknowledging the Lord. So when she hears this promise from God about her son Ishmael, in chapter 16, verse 13, she says in response, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. So Hagar acknowledges something true about God, but doesn't confess belief in God. James expresses this sort of thing in his letter when he says to his readers concerning belief without a life that models this belief, he writes, uh, You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. Remember, stated belief plus actual practice equals actual belief. So in these verses, Hagar is demonstrating what she actually believes. We see this uh, in, in the way that she treats her son in verse 16. Remember, he is about 15 to 17 years old. Then she went and sat down opposite him, after she had set him under a tree, sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. No longer does Hagar believe that God will save them as he had saved them once in the wilderness before. And then finally, in verse 21 uh, even after God has saved them, instead of sticking with God's people, we see this one little detail that, that uh, our author offers us here at the end of this text. And, it, and it's that Hagar doesn't go back to the people of Abraham. She doesn't go back to her, her son's kinsmen and says, this is an amazing promise that has come true for, for Abraham and for Sarah. Let's go and be a part of this and celebrate alongside of them and be part of this promise. She doesn't do that. And there's one little detail that's added at the end of our text there in verse 21. It says, he lived, uh, Ishmael, in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So in, twice in this text that we've read, Egypt has been brought up. Uh, Sarah, who, who, who talks about uh, uh, Hagar being the, the, the Egyptian. And now, here at the end here, verse 21, Hagar goes back to her homeland to find a spouse for her son. 
This is almost kind of a symbolic gesture, one could say, of rejection of God's promised line. A rejection, ultimately, of the gospel. So all in all, what we see here is not a mistreated woman, but an almighty God protecting his promise. A promise that not only benefits Abraham and Sarah, but it also benefits you and me in 2022. Because those who are in Christ, Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, when he's using this whole narrative between Sarah and Hagar, those who are in Christ, Paul says, are not children of the slave woman. You are not a child of the flesh. You are not a child of Hagar, but you are a child of the free woman, Sarah. You are a child of the Spirit. So those who are in Christ are part of this spiritual line that finds its fulfillment in Abraham's offspring, who is Jesus Christ. Now, if you are here and you are not in Christ, you probably find yourself feeling like a hamster in a wheel. And the reason for this is because you are a slave to your sin. And you're a slave to your own attempts at trying to live the good life, trying to be happy on your own in whatever way you possibly can. To attain that that feeling of euphoria that comes with buying something new or being with somebody else or or doing something that, that gratifies your flesh. And at every moment you feel that happiness or like you've attained some level of satisfaction or good, really, in reality, the bar only gets raised higher and higher and higher. And that's why you feel like a hamster on a wheel. Because you'll never attain it on your own. You'll never be good enough. You'll never be able to attain uh, the blessing that, that only God can give to you in Christ. Because you're seeking to be justified by the law. Now, that might be the law that you create in your own mind and saying, I have to attain these certain things to be this type of person and then I'll be good with God. But you'll never even be able to reach your own law. You'll never be able to do it. It's something that can never save you. And Paul says in very extreme language that you are severed from Christ, that you are cut off from him. But the good news is You don't have to be. You don't have to be severed from Christ because God says that the promise to Abraham is for all those who would believe as Abraham believed, which was in the promise that Jesus was coming, which was in the promise that Jesus was coming not just to make a big appearance, but to save his people from their sin. And if you believe that today, if you call on the name of Christ, God says you will be saved. That you too can be free in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness of fulfilling your good promises in our life continually even even when we don't acknowledge it or even don't or, or even realize it 
you are working out your good purposes in our life, just as you did with Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and every other character that we meet throughout the scriptures. You are doing that exact same work in us. And it's a work not just to make us better people or to make us happier, but to make us more like your son, Jesus. So I pray, even as a church, that we would be a people who are moving uh, closer and closer to the cross every single day of our life, knowing that that is where true life and a true relationship with you is found. And we pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen.